Welcome to A Good Technologist, a podcast about how innovators are using technology to make our society a better place in Asia and across the world. This podcast is brought to you by Better.sg, a movement to drive tech for good based in Singapore. We believe that collaborations across disciplines and diverse people can help technology drive better social outcomes. My name is Rovik, and I'm your host today. Through his organization, Social Development Institute, or SDI Academy, Cesar has built a community of empowered migrant workers with stronger professional prospects by leveraging English language instruction as a key entry point to enhance their capacity to navigate safely and effectively in a foreign environment and to access growth opportunities. SDI Academy blends digital media, in-person training, and rigorous data collection to design and deliver high-quality courses which upskill immigrants and help them assimilate into the mainstream. Most notably, SDI Academy launched the SDI Academy app, an e-learning platform with speech recognition AI technology to enable language learning at scale. In this interview, we are privileged to talk to Cesar about his motivation in the space, what it means to care for migrant workers, and his thoughts on the tech for good sector. Sazad, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's going good. Awesome. Good to hear. Now, let's just jump into it. It's quite a unique decision to choose to focus not just on the migrant worker community, but to focus on language education of all things. I'm curious, how did you venture into the space and what motivated you? For this space, particularly with the language space, it has got to do a lot with my own personal story on how I came about from Bangladesh to Singapore and my struggle with language. So that really shaped the entire initiative. But also the whole empowerment issue through language is a very big factor that I got to realize when I started interacting with the migrant world. I came from Bangladesh uh, at the age of 11 with my parents. And when I came here, I, I was really struggling to get into school. Uh, because I couldn't speak the language, even though I studied in a decently good ex- uh, school back in Bangladesh. I had to drop two grades. And that sort of, you know, affected my self-esteem. How old were you when this happened? I was 11 when I came to Singapore, yeah. Oh, wow. So very young. And you were probably in that stage where you were, you know, shaping your identity. You were trying to connect. You were trying to make friends. So, you know, you you leave all your friends behind um, back at home. You come to a foreign country and you need to make friends, but you don't speak their language. And that becomes even even harder. At that age, you're trying to make friends. Is all, making friends is already hard enough. Childhood is tough. I remember that. <laughs> but I mean, I was really, really blessed. I had really supportive teachers. I had really supportive classmates. And of course, I had my parents who are here, right? And that, that sort of helped me to get through that stage. Uh, but as I grew older, I started interacting with a lot of the migrant workers in Singapore, you know, near my area where some of them would, you know, ask me for directions and things like that. And as I got to know their stories, I realized that a lot of them were struggling in Singapore in navigating for directions or, you know, understanding safety instructions, you know, going to uh, higher education for uh, upskilling themselves. So, so all of that, or even going to the doctor to explain um, their conditions. So all of that were uh, because of the language barrier. That's when it really hit me that there's a simple solution where we can empower them to solve their own problems rather than solving the problems for them. That would be a game changer. So a lot of the migrant workers that I initially met were the ones who asked me to give them language classes on the weekends. So that's how it all started. Oh, wow. So that's super interesting. And I want to talk a bit about exactly how it was like engaging with migrant workers and, and supporting them on this journey. But let's talk a bit about what, SDI Academy specifically does, right? So I know that you guys do like in-person classes, but it's also pretty cool because you use 
a number of different digital technologies, including digital media. And now you have a whole AI-based e-learning platform. And, you know, this is a tech for good show. So we're curious, why did you choose to take a tech angle to address this issue? Uh, first of all, I've always been super passionate about social impact space. But I think what I also was very keen on was using science and technology for good. I saw that we can actually use technology to scale the impact that we do. Uh, we also wanted to get the model right before we dived into technology because a lot of times we lose the essence of the personal touch when we just jump straight into technology. I like that a lot. And, you know, maybe if I could just drill down on that, right? So what is the model that you guys got right that you then translated onto some of these tech platforms? We were able to personalize and tailor to the need of the migrants. And it, it has got to do a lot with my own journey, right? So because I came from Bangladesh, I knew specifically for Bangladeshis, what are the specific struggle with pronunciation of certain words, right? When I spoke to the migrant workers and I told them that, oh, these are the few areas that you have to focus on, they, they could totally relate. And, and that, that gave them a, a spark and motivation to focus on those things because otherwise language is such a huge ocean. Second thing we got right was focusing on their day-to-day -day scenarios, things that they go through every day. So the way that they learned English or we learned English in, in Bangladesh was very prescriptive method where we memorized the definition of various grammatical rules, very difficult to memorize. And what I did was that at the beginning, all I asked them was that, you know, what are the scenarios that you go through every day? And they told me that they're day-to-day -day scenarios. And I sort of identified and shortlisted about 25 such scenarios. What are some of the scenarios? Asking for directions, you know, in MRT or bus, for them to do safety briefings. Then when they go to the doctor or when they buy groceries, when they speak to their roommates or when they lose a bank card. So all, of, all the scenarios that they go through and that they struggle with. So those are the very specific ones that we focus on. Because if you can focus on the specific issues, your acquisition becomes a lot faster. And that's, that's what gives you a lot of motivation. And you, you don't have to learn a lot of things. With just those few things, you feel like you acquired at least 80% of what you need to know. I wanted to teach at least 100 people, right? So I had that audacious goal from the beginning that I want to teach a bit more and impact more people. First lesson, I actually booked an auditorium in a community club. Very fortunate, about 134 uh, people showed up on the first lesson itself. Wow. Zero marketing because they are the ones who just told their friends. The idea of using technology for good was there from the beginning. That we took a bit longer to really figure out the model. And I think that's a lesson in itself because when a lot of groups do tech for good, they may be very excited to jump into the tech piece, developing stuff, forcing tech into the hands of some of these beneficiaries or even stakeholders. But actually, it sounds like what you're saying is that you need to really understand the problem, really understand what design features need to be built into the solution. And a lot of that may happen without the use of tech at all. Tech really just helps to maybe translate that to a more scalable basis and to re reduce some of the inefficiencies. Human, we do have some limitations, which I think technology can definitely complement and supplement. Technology should never be the starting point because it's a tool that we should utilize to scale or fine tune our limitations. In a class, we have one teacher and we have, say, 30 students. That's usually the typical case scenario that we have at SDI with our students and, and teachers. As a teacher, I can't focus on each of my students equally. I can't give equal attention to all of them. I don't know all of their problems because we're human and we don't have that much time. When they pronounce something wrongly, I can't say that, oh, you are 33% wrong. You are 44% wrong. All I say is that you're good, you're not so good, and you need to improve more. And that's not specific enough for you to give that motivation because maybe you are 33% correct for the first time. The second time, maybe you are 40% correct. But to a human ear, it sounds almost the same. 
And to, to you, you might be demoralized because you're like, okay, I'm still the same. I'm not improving. But if you can, you know, give that score using technology, say phoneme recognizer to give that kind of scoring, that'll motivate people and people will see that, oh, you know what? I'm improving along the way. And the more I practice, the better I get. And that's where a lot of your speech recognition tech is coming in, I imagine. I mean, we're not there yet because I think speech recognition hasn't developed as much as we'd like it to. But we are definitely working towards that. I, I'm really excited about a lot of the stuff that you were saying. But I think one piece that we should talk a bit more about is exactly what it means to show care and support for the migrant working community in Singapore. And I think there's a lot of issues that are packed into it. A lot of it flared up during COVID. How has the pandemic impacted the work that you do? Oh, it changed everything completely because of the pandemic. First of all, education is not a necessity at that point in time when life and death is the issue. Like everybody else, we stopped our operations for the safety of everybody and we jumped into immediate uh, needs like hygiene kits, like food and grocery items that would be you know, essential for the migrants. But at the same time, because we were already building our app, what we got was that uh, we were very blessed uh, that we we're already halfway through the development of our application. We got our technology team to focus on that. And we already, you know, defined the scope. We already got the initial designs and everything done. So they were focusing on the development part, while our core team, the operational team, was focusing a lot more on the immediate needs uh, rather than the teaching part of things. Things were happening simultaneously because the development would have taken time anyway. What pandemic has done is it has brought light to a lot of the issues that were hidden before the pandemic for the migrant brothers. I mean, these were the situations that they were living in way before, long before a uh, pandemic happened, right? All this while. Uh, it's just that people didn't know and they, they couldn't relate, they couldn't realize that there are people in our communities living near us who were living in such conditions, who were going through so much things. And migrant workers were invisible to most of the local people. And, and let's talk about that. SDI is unique in the sense that it's an organization that very specifically looks at the migrant worker community. I know there are a bunch of other NGOs and organizations out there, but in terms of social enterprises, you guys are one amongst few. What drives the rest of your team to really support and help those in the migrant worker community? There's a lot of fear, discrimination, misunderstanding against the community. It's a very natural us versus them attitude. And I think a lot of Singaporeans see it as, you know, they're here to do a job, uh, all they have to do is to execute. And, you know, after they earn their paycheck, they can go home and go back to their families. They, they're not really part of our society. But actually what I'm hearing is that even if they are just doing a job, they interact with us, whether it's being in our neighborhoods, whether it's interacting with our public services. What's the danger of not recognizing, supporting, and helping the migrant worker community? A lot of us, we don't even understand the whole concept of the, the migrant workers and, and, and what is actually happening because we have a lot of idea about them without really interacting because we don't have that opportunity to interact with migrant workers on a day-to-day -day basis. When we have a lot of volunteers who were volunteering with us when you know things were still normal and we could meet physically and they would uh, actually interact with the migrant workers for the first time in their life, they would say that, that you know the aspirations, the goals that they have are very similar to what we have. And we have a lot more similarities than we realize, right? We don't realize all the similarities, and that's why we have this mindset against them, us versus them kind of attitude. It's a more transactional kind of relationship rather than a relational relationship because we don't have that opportunity for interaction. But what the COVID has done, even for our own self-interest, I think it has made us realize that we have to protect their interest. We have to protect the migrant brothers' interest because overall they are part of our community, whether we 
like it or not, whether we accept it or not, they are part of our community. And if anything happens to them, that is going to affect the rest of Singapore. A pandemic like COVID doesn't, doesn't know the difference in race. It doesn't know the difference in the class. It affects people equally. We have matured over time compared to, I think, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I think people are a lot more gracious. There was a whole slew of tech for good products for the migrant worker community. We even had the opportunity to talk to some of the people behind it. We had a conversation with Sudarshna and Shana from Translate4.sg and VisualAid.sg as well. And then under the Better.sg collective, we have Call Home, which is that whole project to help migrant workers call their family back home. From a tech perspective, you know, what are some of the other tech interventions that you think actually would be good for the migrant worker community? Because I know you've you've tackled a bit about education and English language education. I know that you are doing other stuff as well. Maybe you can share about what you're doing and maybe what are the gaps that still need to be closed. I think a lot of things that we take for granted, uh, migrant brothers do not have that luxury of using that, especially before pandemic. Say, for example, sending money home, say, buying groceries online, say, for, you know, looking for jobs online, all of these kind of services that we get very easy access to. Uh, the migrant brothers are not used to it. So usually what used to happen is that they all went to places like Mustafa or the whole Fair Park area to do their grocery shopping, uh, look for, uh, you know, air ticket, buy air tickets, or look for jobs, look at various agencies. And because of that opaqueness uh, and very manual way of doing things, there was a lot of cost incurred that could be easily avoided. And the thing is that the people who are at the bottom of the pyramid are paying a lot more premium price for the services that we, the, the rest of us who are more privileged, are paying less for. So for remittance, a lot of them used to go to all, all the remittance houses, exchange houses, like Western Union, as well as the various national banks, and they used to send money directly in the physical outlets. But because of COVID, they couldn't get out of their dormitories. And back home, there was also pandemic going, going on, and they also needed that monetary support. So they had to do that urgently. So that was one of the biggest issues that they were facing, uh, remitting money back home. So what we did was that we actually worked with online remittance services that were giving them a compatible and competitive remittance rates. And we brought that service to the dormitories, worked with the dormitory um, operators. So we, we helped to facilitate about $1.2 million worth of uh, remittance transactions during the pandemic for some of these people. That's a huge number. And, and you'd be surprised. They send a lot of money back home. To be honest, this is a small percentage of the overall sum that is usually being remitted back. The other one was um, grocery shopping, right? A lot of them were living in places where they couldn't get access to groceries because other they, they usually would go to Mustafa centers or, 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 or uh, the shops near near Mustafa to buy that. And Mustafa center was closed and they, they couldn't travel and they were uh, having issues with uh, getting food. So we worked with, at the beginning of the, uh, the circuit breaker, we worked with a few organizations, a few donors to be the one delivering cooked food, delivering um, grocery items. Even before the pandemic, there has been a venture that I've, I've been working on with another partner because we realized that the price that they pay, even before pandemic uh, for, for the grocery items, were actually higher than the price that we pay as, as locals and Singaporeans because we have convenience stores, fair price and everything that's near, near us. Whereas for them, they look for specific brands and that are very far away from the main city. But before the circuit breaker, we actually did a pilot test for our app, uh, Doormart, where we basically collate all the orders for the migrant workers on a weekly basis. It's a subscription-based kind of model for grocery delivery. And we absorb the delivery cost because of the volume that we get from specific dormitories. So we go by dormitory by dormitory and we do the delivery. Uh, we have a schedules done for different dormitories and then we do that. And what's more exciting is that we're actually uh, trying to incorporate the re reduction of food wastage. Because I'm sure you know that 
food wastage is a very big issue in Singapore. I, th- I think recently there's been a lot of um, highlights going on about you know how we we waste about 322 million worth of uh, food uh, every year. So we call we call them the odd bunch, right? They might not look perfect, but they are completely edible. And and if they come at a fraction of a price, they save the cost on that, but they're still able to get the same nutritional value, and they're able to uh, enjoy that. So that's something that we are working on. Uh, same goes for you know near expiry products and a few other things that we want to have as an a- additional service like a flash sale kind of things um that they can you know uh take, take advantage of now a conversation before you said that you were thinking of putting all of these under the overall sdi brand and almost create like a mega app of sorts right so yeah a lot of people would call that a super app right um yeah. like we want to build a one-stop platform for migrant brothers so that they can access all the different services whether it is education, jobs, groceries, remittance. But we want to do that by working with various partners who are already established in the space rather than just doing all on our own because it's a huge, huge task. When I'm hearing all of this, I'm realizing that a lot of what you are suggesting and doing is actually not too new to the rest of Singapore, right? Because whether it's some of the delivery platforms that we have or maybe even some of the fintech solution we have access to, I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of transferring money to a different country, I can use TransferWise quite easily. And then in terms of delivery, you can you have all these different apps like Redmart and whatnot. But all of these things are not easily accessible to the migrant worker community because either physical issues or more likely infrastructural and regulatory issues, right? Whether they don't have access to maybe uh, a bank account in Singapore or whether if they they have access to certain services in Singapore in order to be able to do some of these things. I can understand why there is a need to develop maybe a, a customized solution even for this space because while the rest of us are enjoying the efficiencies and the cost savings, it helps us you know, enjoy our life a bit more you're right that it's actually maybe the community that needs it the most that's actually not getting these efficiencies at all. A lot of times, a lot of these companies also don't realize how big of a population that we have of migrants here in Singapore because they're so hidden. Especially whenever I talk to new partners, uh, new organizations that we want to bring their services to the migrants. And when we tell them that we have about close to 1.4 million migrant workers, they're, they're so shocked. They're like, I did, we didn't know. We didn't know it's such a big market. And that's why they, they were not even focusing on or allocating resources. So I think a lot of things got to do with education and how um, we position migrants. And, and we have to make them people realize that they are people who, need, who have everyday needs and we can bring the value to them. How do you make this a sustainable venture by balancing social outcomes and some of these issues around resources? A lot of times, if you want to experiment, if you want to bring in cutting edge technology, you need a lot of, a lot of resources. Usually tech companies get it from investors. Uh, VCs and various people, it's it's very difficult to get that level of profitability because you're serving the people who who might not have that much to uh, to provide. But if you have enough volume, what you can ensure is the the sustainability. From our side, from SDS story, we are very fortunate. Uh, particularly, I'm very fortunate because I started super young, where I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. I didn't have to take care of my family, so I could afford to not take salary for six seven years, right? And then slowly uh, work towards uh, sustainability, and then where we are financially stable—not super profitable, but we are financially stable. Uh, so, but not everybody has that kind of runway. Not everybody has that kind of patience or or, or time for that. And that that is why I think a lot there's not a lot of uh, people working on these areas. My vision was that 
we want to work towards financial profitability and sustainability. It might take a lot longer than typical companies, but we want to achieve that. And I'm willing to, you know, sacrifice for the, for that time being, whether it's six, seven years. At the end of the day, we want to achieve that sustainability. There's a lot of people who may be listening to this and may be wondering, if I want to do something for the migrant worker community, they may not have the same level of familiarity and access that you did, Cesar, because you know you really took that intentional effort. And I guess you had some level of commonality because of, of your background as well. How would you encourage some of these people to approach the problem space and to build a tech for good solution for a community that they may not know much about? So first advice is always um, get in touch with organizations who do, work with people who do to really understand uh, if you don't have that much of time. We are uh, also expanding to the refugee communities in Malaysia, in New Zealand. We are not trying to do everything from scratch because we realize there are a lot of community partners over there who have been doing it a lot longer than us. So as we expand, uh, we are also taking the approach of working with them to understand the problems and then use utilizing whatever solutions that we have, whatever resources that we have and deploying it there. Yeah, and I think that's a very important foundational principle for the tech for good sector because it's not so much about competition i think competition's still important to a degree but actually collaboration is what would really drive some of the innovation in this space thanks so much for sharing a lot of those insights i think it was very inspiring and super useful before we wrap up we always like to ask some fun questions to our guests so that our audience gets to know them better what is some advice that you would have given to yourself when you were 10 years younger go towards deep immersion, even deeper immersion than I think whatever I have done, right? Um, to really understand every aspect of the problems so that I can get an understanding of a bigger picture and fitting those puzzle pieces together a lot faster. So maybe that would have cut the time um, that we took to reach where we are right now. And this is the question we ask everyone on our show. In one word, what is the future of tech? It's impact. I constrain people to one word, but every time it's always so interesting. I appreciate it. Well, Cesar, thanks again for coming on the show. And I hope that, you know, SDI Academy continues to do great work. Good job to you and your team. And I look forward to seeing more great stuff from you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Good Technologist. If you like what we are doing, you can always find out more on our website, better.sg, and subscribe to the podcast via your typical channels such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. This podcast was produced and edited by myself, Rovek Robert, and our email address is goodtech at better.sg. <laughs>